African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Yes, thank you for joining us for a new week of African Dialogue right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember, we're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Well, today we're going to speak about the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission which uh, marked uh, 20 years on Friday, just this past Friday. So has this been an impactful uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Uh, were people satisfied about the outcomes of that process in South Africa? And if you don't know, we'll also explain what the TRC is. But hey, we've got Onel and Zinti standing by to give us our news. And we take a look at your headlines. Libya's new UN-backed unity government secures six ministry buildings in Tripoli. Leaders of Wartan South Sudan urged to form a transitional government quickly. And sanctions will always follow on UN peacekeepers found guilty of sexual abuse. Your latest news, a very good morning. I'm Onelin Sinsi. Libya's new UN-backed unity government has secured six ministry buildings in the capital, Tripoli, and will take administrative control of some of them on Monday. The new government leaders arrived in Tripoli late last month by ship after opponents closed down the capital's airspace. The government of national accord emerged from a UN-backed deal signed in December last year aimed at ending the chaos that has sent two sets of rival parliaments and government operating in Tripoli and the east. UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has urged the leaders of war on South Sudan to form a transitional government quickly. Ban made the comments in telephone calls with President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Mashar, who is due to return to Juba this week to take up his former post as deputy president. Ban says the two leaders should roll out other parts of a fragile peace deal aimed at ending more than two years of conflict. Thousands of people have been killed and more than two million others driven from their homes. This follows more than two years of fighting that erupted at the end of 2013 barely two years after South Sudan's independence. The Special Representative of the UN Secretary-General in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Maman Sidiku, has said sanctions will always follow those UN peacekeepers found guilty of sexual abuse. Sidiku was speaking about the 18 cases of sexual abuse recently reported in the Eastern DRC, allegedly involving 16 peacekeepers from Tanzania, one from Malawi and another one from South Africa. There is zero tolerance on sexual exploitation and abuse. Make no mistake about that. Sanctions will follow once everything is cleared in terms of investigation. We possibly can't be seen as predators while we're here to protect civilians. I can tell you, because I was on the field with a force commander, we have a strong ally in him, 
to ensure that discipline is restored, to ensure that this is not repeated. Lawyers representing South Africa's convicted murderer, former Paralympian Oscar Pistorius, have asked the High Court in the capital Pretoria to instruct correctional services to issue him with a proper functioning electron- electronic monitoring device. Pistorius's case has been postponed for sentencing proceedings for the week of June the 13th to the 17th. The Constitutional Court dismissed the Paralympian's bid to have the murder conviction overturned. Pistorius killed his girlfriend, Rivers Dienkamp, on Valentine's Day in 2013, lawyer Amanda Jackson told the court that previous devices had erroneously reported Pistorius having violated the bail condition that he shouldn't be outside a 20-kilometer radius to his residence. The only thing is I've been instructed merely to place on record, my lord, that the tracking device that the accused has, he is currently on his third tracking device, my lord, as it keeps malfunctioning and providing the accused with warnings that he's violated his conditions while he's still at his residence. We're currently on the third device, my lord, which is still giving violation warnings while he is at home. My instructions in this regard is that the accused is keeping proper logs of all the warnings that come through. And finally, Brazil's lower house of Congress has voted for the impeachment of President Omar Rousseff to proceed deepening the political crisis in the country. Members of parliament approved the move by the necessary two-thirds majority. It appears almost certain to force the president from office, a move that would end 13 years of leftist workers' party rule. If the senator now votes by a simple majority in early May to proceed with the impeachment, as expected, Rousseff will be suspended from her post and be replaced by Vice President Michelle Temer as acting president pending her trial. Now recapping on your top stories, Libya's new UN-backed unity government secures six ministry buildings in Tripoli. Leaders of war-torn South Sudan urged to form a transitional government quickly. And sanctions will always follow on UN peacekeepers found guilty of sexual abuse. Channel Africa News. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember, there are various platforms where you can listen to us on. We're on Channel 902 on DSTV and online. You can listen to us on www.channelafrica.co.za. Now we're looking back in history in South Africa. Friday marked 20 years of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was a court-like body that was assembled in South Africa after their 
end of apartheid. Anybody who felt they had been a victim of violence could come forward and be heard at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Perpetrators of violence would also give testimony and request amnesty from prosecution. The hearings made international news and many sessions were broadcast on national television. The TRC was said to be crucial or a crucial component of the transitional to full and free democracy in South Africa and despite some flaws it's generally rewarded as very successful but after 20 years there's questions about that effectiveness the TRC was set up in terms of the promotion of national unity and the Reconciliation Act and was based in Cape Town now to help us just pick up this uh, conversation we'll start off with advocate Dumisa Nzebenza who was one of the 17 TRC commissioners at the time advocate thank you for giving us your time Now, it's fantastic to speak to you because it would be great to pick your brain just to look back and just to get your sense of a feeling of what did it feel for you 20 years ago when you were actually part of the commissioners of this very historical and pivotal um, commission. they appointed me to head the investigative unit and therefore what that meant was that there was a heavy burden on my shoulder because I had to make sure that I fulfill one of the objectives of the commission in terms of the act and that was to uh, present as full or complete a picture as possible of human rights violations which took place in the context of the conflicts of the past, political conflicts of the past. And the challenge was that we were supposed to do that investigation in two years only, in fact, 18 months, and if there was need for us to do so, to ask for another six months. So we are going to investigate 34 years of South African history. Sure. And that mm. was yeah, uh, looking back at that particular process, would you think that it was a rushed process as some people criticized it afterwards that maybe it was a little bit hastened? Well, you know, uh, we must actually look at it also from the point of view of what was sought to be achieved. Mm. We'll know that in uh, 1994 when we attained democracy in South Africa it was not easy for for the country to move forward when it knew that there were hostilities that took place on the one hand between the those who upheld apartheid mm-hmm. with abject uh, brutality and on the other hand, with, uh, you know, those who were in the liberation struggle. And one of the key issues was whether there would be provision for amnesty for people who did whatever they did in the context of the political conflicts of the past, which would then promote, because the act itself was the promotion mm-hmm. of national unity and Reconciliation Act. Mm. So, um, and therefore, 
I got a sense that the legislator knew that you could not investigate 34 years of South African hostilities uh, of the past in, in two years' time. Yeah. But they had hoped that the broad brush across the canvas kind of approach to human rights violations and all the other things that TRC had to do would give us enough of a picture for us to see what happened in the past mm. and for us then to take the call as to whether that is the kind of future we wanted. And I think to that extent, imperfect as the process was, it, it achieved this objective. Because the other objective was that we should not dwell so much in the past that we are not able to move. Mm. Because it is the future that the democracy was wanting to... Uh, to take care of. Well, we also have uh, Dr. Marjorie Jobson in our studios, who's the National Director of Kuligani uh, Support Group. And Dr. Jobson, thank you for giving us your time once again, and welcome back to our studios. Now, looking at this TRC conversation, it seems like there's still some um, open wounds when it comes to the TRC. Do you think it was an effective um, commission? Do you think that it dealt with the issues that it was supposed to deal with, as was highlighted there by Advocate Dumis and Sebenza? I think from the perspective of what was possible for the commissioners to achieve, mm. they, they fulfilled their task. Mm. problem is that the task is far from complete, and we constantly get confronted with the fact that uh, most of the resources were invested in amnesty hearings and investigations, and a broad brushstroke picture was created of the kinds of atrocities that people had to endure, And the truth is that the TRC reached only 22,000 people who made statements over a 34-year period, which ended in 94, when, as um, Advocate Nsebeza highlighted, the the violence, the political violence, continued through till 1999. And so there are all these very unfortunate exclusions, which are purely on the basis of some bureaucratic decisions, which we believe are completely within the competence of the state to now go back and revisit and create the solutions and we're fortunate to have a minister who actually supports that point of view so um, when you when you talk about focusing on the future what we know the reality every day today is the people who suffered these atrocities for them the past is completely preoccupies them in the present unless you have remedies like particular psychosocial programs particular support for their small enterprise efforts and none of those, there has been no state provision for those four victims of gross human rights violations up to this point in time. We have submitted six programs to the Department of Social Development who are finally saying, yes, we need to actually not only address victims of post-94 crimes, we need to suddenly recognize that the crimes of apartheid have left people as if they were victims of normal crimes. I mean, these were far from normal crimes and people have never yet been able to recover. And so all over the continent in Africa, I mean, Sierra Leone has made huge uh, advances. We recently hosted the Compensation Commission from Cote d'Ivoire. And in Cote d'Ivoire, they held a very successful truth rec and just a truth recon uh, commission mm. and subsequently they set up a compensation commission which mm. 
very interestingly addresses things like crimes against women and children in their political violence. Mm. We have a massive agenda of gender-based violence perpetrated by soldiers and police officials, mm. Mm. and they, they did not apply for amnesty for those crimes because the legislation that um, Advocate Nsebeza talks about mm. did not provide for amnesty for rape and sexual crimes. Mm. We'll come back to those issues because it is a sensitive subject matter. So we have to treat it very carefully on how we look at these various issues that uh, we are dealing with here. But you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In studio, I'm speaking to Dr. Marjorie Jobson, who is the National Director of Kulegani Support Group. I also have on the line Advocate Dumis Nzebenza, who is one of the 17 TRC commissioners at the time. We're looking back at the effectiveness of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Hey, maybe you're listening to us on your line and you think, hey, you want to contribute, give us your thoughts. Remember, you can SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. The question is, do you think that uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was effective? And if so, why was it? Give us your thoughts. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back after this. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. friends and family in the United States of America who enjoy staying in touch with news from home. Tell them they can call 605-475-1711 and listen to Channel Africa from any mobile phone. The best part is there is no extra cost for the call when it originates from the U.S. So tell your friends and family in the U.S. to listen to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. Today, we're looking at the issue of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And uh, looking at its process, was it an effective program itself? Uh, we've got Advocate Dumis Nsebeza, who is one of the 17 TRC commissioners. And also, we've got Dr. Marjorie Jobson, who's the National Director of Kulegane Support Group. Now, I want to come back to you, Advocate. And just look at us unpacking the process of the TRC because sometimes we just say it's just about the hearings themselves. That's where we really locate the TRC process. But can you just overall try to describe the process of uh, how it actually all happened, how it was all set up at the time? Well, I mean, when the act was promulgated on the 31st of December, in 1995, uh, or no, I think it was on the 16th of December, the Archbishop called the meeting on that very day. So all 17 commissioners met in Cape Town at uh, Bishop's Court. And uh, 
I suppose, as an indication that we are ready to start business. We did all those things which we thought we could do. And you must imagine what, when we met, and we met at Bishop's Court because there was nowhere else we could have met at, and we didn't have anything. We didn't have a pen, we didn't have a venue, we didn't have the staff. And, uh, and that is why that meeting was not just a get-together meeting. We, we began business. And that's the meeting at which we appointed, looking at what the act provided, we appointed a commissioner to be in charge of investigations. We appointed chairs of the various committees, Archbishop Tutu became the chairman of the Human Rights Violations Committee. And uh, we also looked at the chairman of the Amnesty Committee, the chairman of the of the Reparations mm. and Rehabilitations Committee, when Keys that came there. So that is that is the sense you must have. Uh, and then we went because it was Christmas holiday in South Africa, and we came back mm. early January. We had to hit the road running. Mm. I had to interview 101 people to be in the investigative unit. We had to find a place, and Borain, Alex Borain, did a lot of work mm. organizing venue this Saturday But and but we set ourselves a date, and the date was. April. April, something must happen. And we had identified that perhaps the hearings of victims were the ones that would be least contentious yeah. because it's, it was going to be people who would have come forward, but some of whom we would have taken statements from and would have been willing to be part of the process. We had done a lot of media PR work to make known what this whole TRC is about and mm. etc. So it's a, it was a, yeah um, mm. when we no sooner had we announced that we were going to have the first hearing uh, in April in 1996 then we were met with legal challenges. Mm. I remember there were security policemen in, uh, who, who, who had got wind of the fact that certain victims uh, in relation to which they had been involved in the killing of the husbands of those widows, the Craddock Four, and uh, the, you know, the Peb Court Three. Then there was an application brought in court. And we had to, you know, deal with that matter on the basis that, uh, you know, uh, if the victims were going to testify, were going to mention people to their detriment, mm. at least they were entitled to be given notice sure. that somebody is going to say this, A, B, C, D, and E. And, um, and to the extent that we did not allow cross-examination, mm. Um, to that extent, there had to be a ruling by the court sure. whether how far we could go with that kind of thing. So that's, that's, that's more or less what happened. Mm, seems like a laborious and a, and a very difficult process indeed. doesn't sound very easy, uh, advocate. And coming to you, uh, Dr. Jobson, your thoughts about that, that process itself? Um, we fully acknowledge the challenges mm. of the process. Um, the truth is that for victims, 
the commission served only 18 months and to try and get a sense of the broad brushstrokes of the atrocities of 34 years, 18 months is in completely insufficient time mm. when you compare it to the Marikana Commission that sat for three years for the cases of 44 murdered mine workers. So um, there are... There are there was a willingness to invest in these post-apartheid atrocities, mm. but not sufficient commitment to actually give justice to victims. What we have learned is that you cannot raise the hopes of support. People who went to the first hearings, um, and we held an event outside the East London City Hall on Friday to mark that first mm. hearing, and people who were in those hearings said they went with such hope, they experienced relief, and from that time it has been one disappointment after another in terms of regulations to facilitate their healing and, and their economic um, redress, which is the huge issue for people, as well as things like cultural justice where mm. bodies have never been um, traced or exhumed. So we think it, it was a brave effort, but it, it was very limited and we have a long road to continue. Mm. Um, we, we appreciate the minister agreeing with us that these are unjustified exclusions. Mm. We are not sure to what extent he can actually facilitate that the whole cabinet will support his mm. point of view. But um, we do think that there are very, very basic things that can be done. We have a reparations fund, which unfortunately is situated only within the Department of Justice, it has no victim representation on it. We believe it should be independent with people who are approved by the victim community. We realize that it's not, not that much money. It's 1.13 billion rand, mm. and it's under great threat of being dispersed into municipalities' accounts. Mm. And we are fighting very hard to prevent that because when we talk to the minister about community reparations, we say these are collective remedies targeted at groups groups of victims mm. who had their houses systematically burned down, their livestock confiscated. It would be very, it is very easy, and we've written many proposals around collective remedies mm. for people. That money should never go into the municipalities because victims have no say, as we've learned over the last two years when the department visits um, meeting holds meetings in these municipalities and unanimously victims have rejected these kinds of proposals. Mm. They say, you want to use our money for white elephants. We have community multi-purpose centers. We don't need more than one in our community. Mm. Mm. So we under, we're under, I mean, the money's under threat and we, mm. we really believe it's urgent to move it into some kind of independent facility. Mm. But we'll take it up a little bit about the moving forward when it comes to this particular process, as you highlight, Dr. Jobson, that there's a long road ahead of us. But let me also welcome Catherine Kennedy, who's the director of the South African uh, History Archive. Catherine, thank you for joining in the conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Now, from an archival perspective, and, and, and I know you work from that area, what does the TRC represent in terms of the history of South Africa? For most people, it's almost like that transitional point. And uh, also there's now we're kind of referencing it a lot from an archival perspective and digging into it, but from a saying, did it work? Do you think that the aspect of the TRC has changed in the way we see it uh, historically now in South Africa than we did maybe 10 years ago? Do you pe think people are referencing it differently now? 
definitely. I mean, I think uh, as Dr. Jobson picked up, you know, when the TRC was initiated, when the public hearing started, there was a sense of hope. There was a sense of optimism about what the TRC was going to bring for the country. And I think given the failure by the state to follow up on the recommendations of the TRC after the fact, I think a lot of that relief has turned into disillusionment and, and um, has prompted a sense of betrayal mm. for victims and survivor groupings across the country. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, from an archival perspective, the TRC was established in order to investigate and to create as complete a picture as possible of the nature of gross human rights violations under apartheid. And I think the fact that so much effort went in to starting this process of investigation, yet the archive has been profoundly impenetrable since the TRC closed. It's been incredibly difficult to access, and Saha's been working for the last 15 years to try and use the Promotion of Access to Information Act in order to open up the TRC archive. Mm. Um, I think the fact that the archive hasn't been available has undermined the ability to continue the work of the TRC. I mean, it was supposed to be laying the foundation. The TRC archive needs to support the ongoing justice and accountability work. And if you take the time to say, we want to hear your stories, we want to understand what's happened, mm. we want to document this, and then you go and put it away so nobody can see it, mm. how does that make those people who came before the TRC feel? That's a double betrayal. We want to hear your stories, and then we're going to put them away so nobody can hear them again. It, and it also flies in the face of the recommendations made by the Truth Commission. You know, the Truth Commission final report clearly said that you know, one of the key aspects of the Commission's report has been its commitment to transparency and public scrutiny. And it stated that the records are a national asset, which must be both protected and made accessible. Mm. But the Department of Justice has, for the last 15 years, repeatedly blocked access to exactly those TRC records mm. that are needed to forward transitional justice in South Africa today. Well, we have to look at a way forward after the break. I think that's where we need, as the conversation right now centered around the TRC being a foundation and I hear that from the various speakers that we have. Uh, just If you've just joined us, just to give you a breakdown who we have, we've got Catherine Kennedy who just spoke, who's the director of the South African History Archive. We also have advocate Dumisa Zabez on the line who is one of the 17 TRC commissioners and we also have Dr. Marjorie Jobson in our studios who's the national director of Kuligane Support Group. Hey, do you think the TRC was in effect effective mechanism. Give us your thoughts to the whole uh, reparation, to the whole issue of reparation that was raised by Dr. Marjorie Jobson. Where are we when it comes to that reparation and actually reinstituting, bringing dignity back to the communities and the individuals, families that were affected or affected by this particular uh, history that we have in South Africa of apartheid. Give us your thoughts. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero, or you can email us at info at channelafrica.org. It's 11.30 Central African time. Let's get a quick break and then we'll come back and continue and we'll start off the next part of our conversation with uh, the advocate in Zebeza. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. 
join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. This is Channel Africa. South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, we are proud of zooming into the big subjects of the continent. And today we're looking at apartheid. It's one of those issues that worldwide was a system that was known all around. And the TRC process was one that was heeded by the international world. Actually, a lot of people celebrated it, thought it was a very good transitional point for South Africa. But now we're seeing that, hey, there's actually gaps within this whole TRC process. Just recently, the wife of uh, Chris Hani, who is the South African Communist Party leader back then, who was uh, uh, actually uh, executed as well, Limpo Hani, widow of slain anti-apartheid hero, on uh, just uh, uh, recently just questioned the effectiveness of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee or Commission, saying perpetrators of apartheid crimes were left off scot-free after appearing at the Commission. And she's always uh, really, really questioned the whole prosecution process of of uh, the uh, TRC advocate. Coming to you for this part of the conversation, do you think the prosecution of uh, the TRC was actually went well? And do you think it was an effective process? Because it seems like there's a, it, we keep on coming back to those prosecutions. Well, I think there's a lot of conflation of a number of things. Sure. Uh, the first one is that the amnesty process uh, was in answer to a provision in that act, the Promotion of National Unity and Reconciliation Act, which provided for amnesty under certain categories. Uh, some of the criteria that have had to be met by a person applying for amnesty was full disclosure. And I think those amnesty committees uh, laid a great score on, on full disclosure. That is why Janus Wallace and Clive W. Lewis didn't get amnesty in spite of them having applied for it because in the view of that amnesty committee, they had not made a full disclosure. So they couldn't get out of jail. They had already been prosecuted, convicted, and they were serving time. In fact, they escaped the death, the imposition of the death sentence by the fact that we had gone into a democracy that was and went on to pronounce the death sentence as being unconstitutional. So that's the one thing. How he then applies for parole? The parole in a democracy follows certain rules mm-hmm. and uh, and has not to be confused with the with the TRC. But the question of prostitution is also very critical. The act had provided that whoever up, did not apply for amnesty when they should have applied for amnesty because of the crimes that they had committed in the past, if during the window period they didn't apply for amnesty, 
Or if they applied for amnesty, and like W. Lewis and, and, and Yannis Wallace uh, did not make a full disclosure, then when they got denied amnesty, then the prosecutorial arm of the justice system should kick in. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when we when we dealt with the commission at the end of 1998 and also at the end of 2013, there were a number, I mean 2003, when the amnesty, all the amnesty uh, applications had been dealt with, there were a number of cases that were sent to the prosecutorial authorities for them to pursue. And there was a reluctance. We didn't, I, speaking for myself, I, 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 I was vocal, mm. and even in our book, mm. we did say it is clear to us that there is some collusion at some level. Now it has actually been revealed by a person, Vosipigoli, who was the National Director of Public Prosecution at the time, that there was political interference. That's why some of these prosecutions for TRC-related cases could not proceed. And that is why we have an anomaly of a Nogutula Simelani who was uh, abducted in 1983, tortured, and obviously killed by the security police, mm. that uh, we have never been able to deal with those who had been involved in the crime mm. until now. And even then, it was pursuant an application that was brought to force the end of the prosecutorial services. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Jobson, your thoughts? Um, the issue here is this this real sense of betrayal that Ms. Kennedy refers to around the failure to prosecute 355 cases which the investigating arm of the TRC had investigated to a level high enough to produce sufficient evidence they believed to force the National Prosecuting Authority to begin prosecutions. That process has been on hold for more than 10 years. Um, It is only opening again now, and what we are finding is that the, the National Prosecuting Authority only initiates a case after private investigations have delivered to them enough evidence to force their hand. So it is still not a process that gives to victims the truth they need. Advocate in Sebeza talks about full disclosure. What we know from our victim-offender dialogues inside prison with these political offenders is they describe to us how they met with their defense attorneys before they went to the amnesty hearings, these ones who, who didn't achieve amnesty, and they constructed a narrative that they knew would meet the requirements of, of the amnesty clauses of the, of the act. And um, very few of them actually broke rank with their other colleagues, mostly in assassination squads, and told the truth. And um, so the other part that we know is when we engage those defense attorneys who helped all these applicants for amnesty, they tell us that we are never going to get that truth because they have so much an, um, information on what the opposite, the opposition to them at that time, the underground liberation movements, did that it will become a tit for tat and it will never end. We still believe that we're at a stage now where most of these security police people who are giving statements now, sworn statements, are former security police who are no longer under threat of losing their jobs and they are now willing to bring the truth to the table. So I think we're in an era where we can finally get the real truth, not the fabricated truth that was presented to amnesty hearings.
Well, Catherine, that leads me back to you. How do we tell the story? Because it seems like uh, hearing from what Dr. Marjorie Jobson was said, it was actually carved in a certain way. It was carved towards a certain direction. And from your archival perspective, I'm sure it's very difficult to pick information and to say, well, what's the true story? What is the real narrative that should be told about this part of our South African history? Well, I mean, I think that's the that's the value of trying to open the the, the TRC archive up. Sure. You know, there isn't, and to follow up on the recommendations that there needed to be ongoing truth recovery, that there was still more stories to be unearthed and to be collected through oral history processes, um, through document recovery, um, and the idea of us using Pyre in order to mine the the state archive is so that it becomes broadly, more broadly accessible to South Africans through our archives at Constitution Hill. You know, it isn't, it isn't up to us to go and, and rewrite the narrative. It's to provide mm-hmm. more and more access to those records that people can interrogate for themselves and, and um, deepen their understanding of, of what took place. And, I mean, we, we have already made an enormous amount of records available through repeatedly taking the Department of Justice to court in order to get records released to us and by putting things like television coverage of the public portion of the TRC process um, available online in collaboration with the SABC so that people can watch and understand more about what this process was about um, so that we can understand what the kind of resonances are between the injustices of our past and the kinds of injustices and lack of accountability and impunity that we're seeing in our country today. Mm-hmm. Well, I need to wrap it up. Uh, it seems like there's a long path to go and, and, and that's the, the feeling that I get from just the movement of where the conversation is surrounding itself. Advocates and Sebenza, in, in, in terms of this issue, do you think that just in a minute or so that you have more to contribute in actually taking this issue forward, that we actually are sitting in an area of our democracy where we need to reflect and move things forward? Just in a minute or so. Yeah, I suppose uh, there's always a room for doing something about <clears throat> about what we have now identified to have been missing steps. I think prosecutions should take place in earnest. I'm encouraged by the fact that there has been an announcement that the prosecution of those who murdered um, Krill, Ashley Krill in Cape Town, that one that's one of the charity-related prosecutions that's going to take place. But I think over and above everything else, there needs to be another Indaba. I'm not talking in terms of another commission. A conversation, a national conversation, that is going to address the socioeconomic issues in our society. Mm -hmm. The TRC was given a task which it could not fulfill, especially when in the preamble to its act, there was talk of the reconstruction of South African society. Mm. No way you can reconstruct society without addressing economic issues. Sure. Well, we have to leave it there, Advocate. I need to wrap it up with you, Dr. Uh, Jobson, before I go to, to Catherine. Your final sentiments? Um, I think that we're at a very interesting place in the country where young people are beginning to discover that 
lot of these people who who lost their lives standing up for what they now call decolonization were the pioneers of this wonderful student movement that is demanding that we recover our own African histories and identities, that we can be proud of that. I think the fact that there are so many stories of such pride hidden in the TRC archive is another incredible resource. And what we know is that teachers tell us they struggle to talk about the TRC. So we have a lot of work to do in terms of helping teachers with access to materials like the popular report that Professor Njabulo and Debele wrote, which has never been published in South Africa. I think that should be, for me, top of the list so we can read those versions. We have wonderful books like Jacob Lamini's Ascari and Peter Harris's In a Different time, but they wrote about their particular experiences, and we need Professor Ndebele's narrative of the story of the TRC now to become available, I think, urgently. Mm-hmm. Catherine, just to wrap it up with you, what do you have to say in terms of um, moving forward when it comes to this narrative? Um, I think we need to follow up on the, the economic aspects of apartheid. I think that was something that wasn't grappled with sufficiently by the TRC for a number of reasons, but we know that beyond the, beyond the um, individual violations, there, were, there was enormous economic exploitation, there was an enormous profiteering and corruption at the heart of apartheid that was suggested by the TRC and they started those investigations. And those are the kinds of records we're looking for now in conjunction with Open Secrets, a Cape Town-based activist research unit, trying to follow the money um, that would address some of the socioeconomic um, inequalities mm. that Advocate Inzabeza referenced. I think we've got to understand more mm. about that side of the unfinished business of the TRC because that can really affect transformation. Mm. Well, this was a very, very progressive conversation. It's a very sensitive one, but I think this was beautiful because we were propelling ourselves towards new possibilities. I want to thank our guests, Catherine Kennedy, who's the director of the South African History Archive. Also in our studios, we had Dr. Marjorie Jobson, who is the national director of the Kuligane Support Group. I also want to thank advocate Dumisa Nsebeza, who is one of the 17 TRC commissioners, for giving us his time and uh, uh, just uh, being part of the program. Thank you all for making time for us. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. That's how we wrap it up. Hey, do you think this was a very progressive program? As we hear, there's a lot of loopholes. What can we do to take this narrative forward? I know in my own family, we lost an uncle uh, during the 1976 uh, whole um, student movement, and uh, we still don't know where he was or where he ended up. So, hey, there's so many angles. We weren't even called to the TRC as much as we made a submission. Maybe it was because he was just another guy from uh, not Soweto, or maybe not one of the big political figures or we don't understand why we weren't called to the TRC. And uh, so it's still interesting to know that there's still a process that can be taken forward with these issues. Give us your thoughts. How can we actually make sure that we move forward when it comes to this issue of the TRC? SMS us your thoughts on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero, Or you can email, email us at info at channelafrica.org. Hey, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with our economics news. <laughs> This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi.
My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I With your economics news, I'm Asanda Matsaunyane. Good morning. The Southern African Customs Union, SACU, is vital in influencing and increasing regional trade within the SADC region. This is according to commentators and role players within the business sector. South African President Jacob Zuma is meeting his Botswana counterpart, Ian Kama, on Monday to discuss matters relating to SACU. Itumeleng Kajane reports from Khabaruni. Mining, agriculture and tourism are the major players to both South Africa and Botswana's economies. Their economies are also interdependent, but Botswana depends more on South Africa. Almost 80% of the landlocked country's imports come from and through South Africa, especially the port of Deben. Zimbabwe has recorded a trade surplus against South Africa for the first time in many years. This is after the beleaguered Southern African nation imported less than it exported. According to figures from Zimstad, Zimbabwe imported goods worth 476.1 million US dollars from neighboring South Africa in the three months ended 31st March 2016. The South African Reserve Bank says it will tolerate temporary breaches of its inflation target to smooth out short-term fluctuations in economic growth. However, the bank's deputy governor, Daniel Minele, says a persistent breach will require a policy response. His statement is contained in a speech he delivered at an investment seminar in the U.S. food price pressures in South Africa have intensified in recent months. South Africa's central bank will tolerate temporary breaches of its inflation target to smooth out short-term fluctuations in economic growth. This was highlighted in a speech delivered at an investment seminar in the United States at the weekend and posted on the bank's website. This has intensified in recent months and posed a significant upside risk to inflation. Let's look at the financial indicators now. The U.S. dollar is trading at 14.53 to the South African Rand, 10.65 to the Botswana Pula, and 9.14 to the Zambian Kwacha. It's also at 0.70 to the British Pound and 0.88 to the Euro. Gold is at $1,234 and platinum is at $974 an ounce, while the price of Brent crude oil is $41.27 a barrel. Your economics news on Channel Africa.
In our sports update this hour, I'm figuring what we kicking off with rugby news. Bled's coach Neil Powell says his team's third place finish and knocking out New Zealand in the quarterfinals at the Singapore League of the HSBC World Rugby Seven Series helped elevate his team back to second place on the overall series standings. For the second tournament running, the Bledsborke won the third, fourth place playoff against Argentina after losing the semi-final to Fiji, who were beaten by Kenya in the final. Fiji still lead the series standings with 147 points, while the Bledsborke are on 139 points, followed by New Zealand on 135 points, with two tournaments remaining in Paris and London. Yeah, it was definitely uh, um, important for us to get those two points in that last game against Argentina. I think a uh, difficult first half. They threw everything at us to try and, um, to try and uh, score one or two tries against us in that first half. But credit to the, to the guys how they defended and how they kept them out in that first half. And then uh, they used the opportunities that was um, up for them in that second half to put them away uh, with four tries to zero. Um, yeah, so important. I think the fact that New Zealand, we beat New Zealand in a quarterfinal and they lost to Samoa in, that, um, in, a, in a plate final, uh, it's important for us to get those points and get us back on the second place in the lock. Powell has urged this team to keep on believing in their system and the results will eventually come. The last time the Blitzburg won a tournament was in December in their home tournament in Cape Town. Since then, they have featured in two finals, both against the New Zealand in Wellington and Vancouver, and finished third in Singapore, Hong Kong, Las Vegas and Sydney. Yeah, definitely disappointed. I think uh, the players and the management, and again, not getting out of those last few hurdles. And um, the thing is... The margins between winning and losing in sevens are so small and the differences between Dippies getting tackled out in the corner flag and scoring a try, um, and that's the difference. It's millimetres and, and unfortunately we came up short again. And um, But we also know when we play against Fiji and New Zealand, there's always going to be one try on either side. So um, something that we need to look at, something that we need to get over sooner than later, we need to get that motivation so that the guys can start believing, in the, not start believing, but keep on believing in the system. And what we stand for was a Springbok 7 team. And on to Super Rugby. Their second defeat of the season has left the DHL Stormers in the rare position of being a team under pressure as they head into a Vodacom Super Rugby clash against the Reds at Newlands on Saturday. Robbie Fleck says after their 29-22 defeat to the Emirates Lions at the weekend, he's pleased to have taken a bonus point for losing by less than seven out of the game, and he is right to be pleased, as that solitary point is now all that separates the Stormers from the second-place team in Africa Conference 1, the Vodacom Bulls. The Bulls have lost just once this season, and have all, although they did draw with the Sharks before Easter, they have been building up impressive momentum. Their win over the Reds at the weekend was impressive and has made it impressive and imperative for the Cape side to do the same when they host the Reds or risk falling off top spot on their conference group for the first time in 2016. On to football news now. South Africa's futsal team got their AFCON Cup of Nations campaign back on track with a hard-fought 3-0 win over Zambia at the Standard Bank Arena in Johannesburg on Sunday. Team manager A.B. Abraham says they are delighted with the win against the Zambians. We, we're happy, the team is confident, and uh, the result has actually boosted us and boosted the, the, our supporters. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I wouldn't say revival, it's just that our team, obviously, in, in preparation, we've never played any international uh, friendly or warm up game. Uh, so, obviously, the first game was 
bit of a shock or stage fright, I would say, for them. But as you see on Sunday, they started to play as the coach wanted them to play. I think from now, the performance should just get better. And that's your sport news this hour. Well, that's how we wrap it up. Uh, thank you to both our uh, news readers uh, for that sports and uh, econ. Uh, but hey, what are your thoughts around what we're talking about today? And um, you know, it's very interesting to see that you know some things are just foundational. Sometimes you need to carry a process through. And I think maybe the TRC is something that we should look at as a foundational process that was successful, but maybe needs some follow-ups. Give us your thoughts about what you think about the effectiveness of the TRC, and also how can we take it forward. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero is our SMS number, or you can email us at info at channelafrica dot org. Well, tomorrow we'll be back. I think we'll be looking at Africa regional integration. What does that mean? And also look at the success rate of that. There was a new report that was released by the African Development Bank that looks at that. So tomorrow we'll be looking at more uh, economical issues on the continent of Africa. So, hey, we'll be back next time. Same place, same time tomorrow, 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock Central African time. Coming up is uh, Africa Midday with the latest news on the continent.